first rule in grip sport is you tell everyone about grip sport. You know, crushing, pinch grip, thick bar, wrists. If the best guy in the world can't lift 100 pounds on it, I, I don't give a shit about it. Okay, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Grip Show. Um, a lot of times when people are doing these grip interviews and stuff like that, uh, there's a lot of other grip sources out there interviewing people and doing their thing too. One person that I very seldom see interviewed or had, I don't know, I've never really heard them be interviewed or discussed much with them um, is uh, Luke Raymond. So I'd just like to welcome Luke to the show. And uh, that's my first question for you, Luke, is you've been around doing grip sport for quite a while now probably about nine, 10 years or at least. Um, and there's a lot of these shows out here. I know you were on like uh, the old uh, Twig episodes. So the, uh, count, you know, excluding that, um, how come none of these other people have ever reached out or interviewed you or have you just turned them down? Uh, I haven't even been asked by anybody, honestly. Uh, I, I would definitely do them because it would benefit me as far as like business wise, but also I, like, I enjoy talking with people, like kind of given my story, people can relate to that. So, um, no, I haven't turned anybody down as far as, uh, interviews. So. Yeah. It just, uh, it kind of shocks me that there isn't more of your stuff out there because we'll, we'll get into your company and everything that you do with that, but you've consistently been one of the top lifters and at a, a lighter body weight compared to the heavyweights and stuff like that. But you're a guy that has uh, pretty much hung around that 93 kilo class around 205. And I mean, you can pretty much lift with yeah. any, anybody across the board and almost any lift you make half the stuff most people are training on and lifting with. So I just found it weird that no one had ever taken the time to like, Hey man, maybe we should interview this guy. You kind of like flew under the radar somehow. So I'm, I'm really happy that, uh, you accepted to do the Appreciate interview that. and uh, just just glad to have you on here. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's just because I don't have a huge online presence. Um, like most of my uh, like Instagram posts and Facebook posts are personal are a lot of like the baby and suiting and some grip stuff. It's not like a ton of stuff and all the business stuff. I'm mostly just reposting other people's posts that they're making. So. I think it may be just because I'm not as present as other people are. Yeah. You're not uploading like five videos a day. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. uh, could you just give like a quick, like uh, maybe five videos a month would be like, <laughs> yeah. Could you just give kind of a, I guess a real just generic background. I mean, you're, you're based up in Pennsylvania, correct? Like, I don't know yeah. if it's actually why loosing, but you're in that area similar to like where Jed's at, but you're like slightly like 15 minutes away from him or something, right? Yeah. Yeah, so actually, I, I grew up in Wailusing. Jed grew up in Tawanda, and now we've switched. I live in Tawanda. He lives in Wailusing. Okay. Uh, he's a little bit older than I am, but uh, as far as getting into any sort of strength, I never even touched a weight until I was 22 years old, right after I tore my ACL. Um, so I had a late start for any sort of weight training. And then that is actually what directed me towards uh, physical therapy. So after I tore my ACL, went through re surgery rehab, uh, two years later, I went back to PT school and completed my master's. And I, I kind of worked out then, but it was more of like that 
kind of bro science split of bench, overhead, deadlift, and very little uh, lower body involved with like squatting and stuff like that. So, uh, and that's when, so my first six months out of school, I was working in Wailusing at the local PT clinic. And that's where um, I had known Jed because I'd played like men's softball against him, co-ed softball against him. Okay. I knew who he was. Uh, I didn't really have a personal relationship with him as far as like friendship or anything like that. But um, yeah, so the the story of like how I met Jed and got into grip is he became a patient of mine um, for can thoracic you, outlet syndrome. Because okay, I was gonna say, can you disclose the injury? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the uh, yeah he, uh, he he's he's fine with that considering it's been told amongst. <laughs> many different podcasts uh yeah so he had like thoracic outlet so he had a little nerve issue going on in his arm causing weakness which was related which was affecting his grip um so between pec minor stretching shoulder mobility movement soft tissue release we got rid of that um but in the process he actually invited me to his house to try some of his grip stuff uh i couldn't barely do anything i was like nothing as far as like weight and blobs like i think it looked like a 70 the first day closed like a one and a half gripper uh, i don't even remember really the things that i did other than those two things so i the first thing i bought was a set a set of grippers captain to crush grippers because he was going to have a contest and a few months later and that was kind of the only thing i was willing to train and that's kind of where my grip journey started i competed in the contest had a few good events a few things that i didn't really know how to do i failed on like a one inch phone book in the medley <laughs> that's the only thing i missed in the medley yeah was a one inch phone book tear i'm like of all things so now when uh when you were working as a physical therapist because you did that for like over six years right in total yeah, six and a half years okay. full time full time so yeah when uh when jed tries signing in does he actually write his name jed johnson or did he write down napalm no, this is, I found out in Napalm later down the road. Oh, so you, okay. So I you just had, knew him as Jed. <laughs> okay. I, I had to ask that. I've seen if he's trying to like sign in at the front desk as Napalm because no. apparently that's what he goes by, but uh, I don't know. So yeah, so you're saying he signed in as Jed Johnson? Well, he's actually Jedediah, so I knew him by his full name. Oh man, real official. So in case, in case you didn't know that, it's actually <laughs> Jedediah. So now he has like three names, so it's, it's hard to keep up with. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting how you, uh, you know, you have multiple degrees, you're working as a physical therapist, and then you kind of turn that into opening your own business. I mean, because I, I, I don't know the whole like inner workings or the whole details of uh, Arm Assassin Strength Shop, but like that's your yeah. business. But I mean, that, 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 that's pretty much you, correct? I mean, that's like you're yeah. kind of like a one man army with that. And yeah, so that actually started much later in my kind of grip. It actually started more with my arm wrestling career than it did with anything grip related. Um, I started arm wrestling in 2016. And the only place really to order any handles or training equipment was Poland, was through like Mazarenko. There were a few smaller companies in the US, but everything was like super expensive if you had to ship it from overseas, which I mean, I understand I, I'm on the, I'm now on the other side of that. Yeah. So 
so I, I, I made a couple of handles for arm wrestling and I made a, mainly I made, I made two, I made one for me, one for a friend. And when I went to the tournament, I took both with me while well, I came home without one. So I sold those two and then I made a couple other handles and then, and then there was like a wrist wrenches I made. Those were some of the, some of the first things I, I had kind of built as just a side. It was more just to basically sell enough equipment to pay for like my entry fee for arm wrestling tournaments. So if I could sell 50, 60 bucks worth of equipment, it would help pay for the entry fees. And yeah. that's, that's kind of where it started. And then friends of friends wanted stuff and more friends wanted stuff. And then I started making more items and then it's just blown up to what it is today. But I'm still the only welder fabricator. I do have a part-time helper that does like arm wrestling table, elbow pad, like the wooden vinyl work on those. Okay. Um, does help with packaging occasionally, but that's only 10 to 15 hours a week at most. Okay. So um, you're basically, I don't want to say grip intro, but you started arm wrestling first, really, before you kind of dove into the grip world. Um, no, so, grip was 2012. Okay. Arm so wrestling you, so was 2016. You had, okay. So you had done some grip first. Had yeah, you competed? for four years, I had been doing grip. Okay. And then what kind of got you from grip to the arm wrestling? Just that crossover of having a lot of guys doing both? Uh, so always had, always arm wrestled with friends in like high school on like the lunchroom table or like the bar room, the, the, kind of the typical arm wrestling interest before you move into like actual competitive arm wrestling. But a name that uh, JT Strassner, who may be one of the greatest short steel benders ever. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Also I, did grip. I was going to say, uh, man, I, he's, I, uh, he's from Missouri. I, I met him at the Arnold, um, actually. Yeah. Very random. He just came up talking to me and was like, hey, you know, like what events are you guys doing? Because he was with like some arm wrestling people. I think that they were, yeah. they were arm wrestling at the Arnold this, this year uh, in, back in March. And uh, he was, he was talking about something and we kind of got on the subject and I did, I didn't know him, didn't know what he looked like, but I had seen the name JT Strassner. I'd seen it before. So this guy's talking to me and I'm like, Oh, like you're whatever. Something. He, I think he announced himself by like his, uh, like his regular name. And I was like, Oh, like JT Strassner. He's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, no, that's me. Yeah. He's easily. Yeah. I think that's how he's like, hey, I'm Justin or something. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, like JT Strassner. And he's like, yeah, dude, like kind of like surprised that I knew him. And I'm like, man, I've just looked at so many different lists and some of these names have stuck with me. So whether it was like grip or steel bending or maybe in some video with you guys, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I actually, like I said, it's kind of a random thing to meet him, but I, I chatted with him for a minute, but yeah, that was it. But he's like, oh yeah, I know Jed and Luke. And we talked a little bit about that. So, but yeah, he, he, so that kind of got you into arm wrestling or that's one of the people that you. Yeah. So with. Yeah, he's originally from Missouri, but he was in a, living in our area working for the gas industry. So he's a welder for the gas, for like a pipeline welder for industry. Okay. So he was here, I don't know, three or four years. And I just randomly saw a flyer on Facebook for an arm wrestling tournament that was in Dunkirk, New York, which is just outside of Buffalo. And I was messaging, I was like, I was thinking about going to this just to see what it's about. And JT's like, I'll ride with you. Let's go. So like two weeks later, we, we went and went to our first arm wrestling tournament. It was literally that, that uh, abrupt of a, okay. a, a decision. Like it was like, let's just go and figure it out. And how did that turn out? 
So in between those two weeks, I actually read James Retorita. So another grip okay. guy, former arm wrestler, like arm wrestled a long time. So he had a book, Strong Arm Tactics. So in those two to three weeks, I literally read his whole book, looking through the whole book on like some of the technical side of it. But I basically went in with the idea of just be safe, try not to break my arm. So kind of keep my eyes on my arm, figure out things and then see how it happens. Well, actually, JT in the amateurs beat everybody left-handed and I beat everybody right-handed. And then I jumped into the pro class and ended up uh, going four and two and taking second place, losing wow. only to Brandon Elsesser. So, and I beat some guys that have been competing for 10, 15 years. And I literally had never even seen an arm wrestling table in person. So that was kind of the start of my arm wrestling journey. But having some grip hand and wrist strength from grip background was definitely a benefit for me. And then when you kind of, uh, I mean, if that's like your first outing and that's kind of the result, you kind of realize, I don't know, like a guy that just shows up for the first time and just pulls 500 on a deadlift, like, Hey, I might be good at this. You know, when you get that kind of a result, yeah. you, you're more inclined to kind of stick with it. Like you're listening to that feedback, like, damn dude, you're pretty good. Or I'm sure people that there were probably like, how long you been doing yeah. this? And you're like, Oh, this is my first time. And they're like, sure, dude. <laughs> yeah. And literally, so I was like, yeah. And that's what it was. Like, like zero experience other than reading a book. Yeah. So uh, from that, just, just to kind of go down um, and maybe have you expand on some of this um, for the arm wrestling side of things. So that first competition and having that success kind of led into um, 2016 uh, world arm wrestling amateur champ right hand at 195 pounds is that a pretty pretty big competition or is that like a pretty well-known thing so yeah, we had to travel to las vegas for that um, okay and it was a it was definitely the biggest competition i had ever competed in as far as like the number of people plus people had to commit like we weren't gonna we were gonna win a plaque there was no money involved. Uh, the pros, there was a lot of money involved. Like it was like 20 grand for first place for each class. Um, but all of, all of us amateurs that were going there were doing it for a metal plaque and, and just kind of some, some pride. So at that point I had done ooh, six or seven tournaments. So I had, I at least had some good experience. I had actually traveled to South Carolina for a wedding and stopped at James's house, Retreatus. Um, and be, like a few, a month before I went to Vegas and just went through some basic practice trainings to set up. Um, and that helped me a ton because be, learning from him and what he, his kind of idea of where my strengths was and having his background and understanding, I was able to basically use what he told me to go out and go to uh, Las Vegas and win. Let, went through undefeated, won in the finals twice and was successful so it would was, you say, i mean it was, it was it was such a good time out there would you say that's probably your like biggest arm wrestling win or maybe like the tournament you're most proud of uh I, it's definitely a top three because being your first my first year um it was just a it was one of the, the best experiences i've ever had because there was 30 about 25 to 30 people per class um they had four classes of all the weight classes and well, funny story about this. So the way they were running it, it was like a big square and on each corner was the four weight classes. 
So the first match that was happening, they had a camera on that. The first match of the day, first match of the weekend, the guy literally, first guy breaks his arm. Of nice. all of all matches, first match, he breaks his arm. There wasn't another injury the whole rest of the tournament, but the first one that they turned the camera on was a broken arm. So that was like a, a terrible start to the whole weekend of having that happen. But um, yeah, I would say that it's one of the more, I mean, it was, it was viewed online from a lot of people they had because WAL had uh, sponsorships with like monster energy. Um, I can't remember all who all was, but that was the main one was monster energy. So it was, it was a large sponsorship as far as that. Uh, I do have a couple other like the Keystone PA, the PA, the Keystone States. Is that like the state, um, the state I, champ? You're, you're, you're cause yeah. it has here that you're two time state champ at arm wrestling and that's in, uh, Pennsylvania and New York. So that's, yeah. So I, I won PA States one year. That was actually at 187. So that was a vicious cut for me from 205 to 187. Yeah. Um, and then that was 2017, which I, so I won my weight class, but the way they did it at the end, they had like an extra. So all the first and second from each class, they, um, they started lightest to, to have, heaviest they kind of put a bracket so all the light people were in the lower bracket and all the heavier people in the upper bracket and then they did a cutoff in the middle of and then uh whoever won the light class and whoever won the heavy class actually came to the finals well that was where i actually beat sam harris in the lightweight finals for the day which sam was a wal champ at the time for 165 but constantly goes to tournaments and competes in higher classes and just beats people I mean, he's beaten me two other times since then. So it's, but it was a big win for me because I had very little experience and at the level that he was. Okay. And then the other one I have here that's based around arm wrestling is a national sit down arm wrestling champ. So I I like watching arm wrestling. I'm not exactly, uh, I guess I'd be more of a fan. I don't really do it, never really tried it. Mm -hmm. Um, I assume sit down arm wrestling just means that like, you're doing the same thing, but you're just seated. Am I right there? Or is that? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So the tables are lower than there's bent, there's seats that you're sitting on. They actually have seat belts. Cause if you're, if your butt leaves the seat at all, it's a foul, which limits your ability to like finish pinning people. Cause sometimes when you're, when you're on like a regular arm wrestling table, you can like press and you can get up on top of your arm to press yeah. down. Well, you can't do that and sit down. So it's so a lot more like hook top very little top roll because you can't back pressure because you can't drop either. So you can't go down as far as your body weight. So you're staying a lot more in here and it's just, it's just a different movement. So it would kind of be similar to uh, like taking someone like MMA and then forcing them to box. Like it's just kind of like taking away half your body or taking away some of the tools and then you're kind of just working. Yeah. It's a similar sport, but you're limited in your, I guess how much of your body you can use, or it's kind of going to narrow in on a couple specific things. Would that be, yeah, uh, yeah, is that accurate? It, it's okay. exactly, it's, it's a lot, a lot more specific, this uh, specific movements. Okay. So uh, from the arm wrestling and like you said, you're talking started grip around 2013, 2012 or whatever. And then you're moving on to like this arm wrestling stuff in 2016 but I have here that, and this is, this is what I'd like to bring up too, is a 2018 North American grip sport overall champ. So 
from that 2016? I mean, were you still competing in grip the same time you were doing these arm wrestling things and you were just competing in both um, at the same time? Or was there like different waves where like you did one for a year or two and bounce back and forth? Yeah, so I was doing both kind of the whole way through okay. as far as, um, but there'd be times where I would do more arm wrestling and other times where I'd train more grip. So it just varied. Uh, before nationals, I think I took like three months off of arm wrestling or two months off of arm wrestling um, just to kind of let everything heal because um, you, you get a lot of tendon pain in arm wrestling if you do it a lot, like inner elbow pain. And then, so that was the year that, I mean, I'd be the first to tell you, it was the year Jed didn't compete. So it just gave me an opportunity to uh, be successful. Like Justin Major was there. Eric Rusin was there. There's a bunch of other Canadians that were there. Um, I'm trying to think of who all. That, that was, was going to be one of my questions. I can't even remember. Yeah. Me being like the overall champ, I was going to ask, you know, if you could remember any other names that were there and who else competed, you know, just to kind of see who you bested that day. Um, but uh, yeah, like, I mean, if it's guys like Eric and I, yeah, like I said, I just want, I was just curious about the lineup, but yeah, someone like Eric and those type of people, I mean, pretty top notch. So would you say that's probably the biggest, biggest competition in grip sport? that you feel that you've won or would you equate like, okay, I know you won like the Arnold for hundred KG. I mean, you have a lot of different wins over the years. I'm just curious as to like, do you feel like that one was just the first biggest one? And then there's many others, or is it still kind of stand at yeah, the top of the I, others? I, would, I mean, it's definitely my best individual, like play. Um, say it's my best competition as far as like, lifting percentage based on like what I expected to get. Um, okay. But so that actually came down to the last event between the, which actually this, it's a lot clearer now too. The, in that contest, it came down to the last event. Um, if I remember correctly, Justin was beating me by like a point something percentage point. It was very, it was a very small percentage point. So I bet I had to beat him on the wrist roller. Mm-hmm which I, we had done wrist roller one other competition prior that that was at Derniat's gym. And I actually won that event there, even with like Andrew, Eric, Cody Burns was there. Jed was there. Um, so I do, I feel like I have good experience with wrist roller events. There's something about the way I do it, the technique I've that seen I use, the way uh, my body fires. I'm, I, I can just do it very quickly. Yeah, I've, I've seen some videos of you doing that. And anytime it's been included in something, those past videos, it seems like you're always at the top or probably the fastest there is. So regardless of who's in the room, I yeah, can so see you I was, coming out on top. Yeah, so I had done one, like we did one trial session while we were setting it up just to kind of figure out what weight was appropriate based on like the distance we were doing. And I just did, I took one attempt. That was like the only time I ever trained it. And it was just to figure out like, all right, this is too light. We need to add another 25 pounds. Okay. So I took that time and I'm like, well, I felt like I did it pretty fast that time, but we added more weight. So, and then Justin actually beat my time by like three, three or four seconds. So I'm like, oh shit, like in my head. So I'm like, all right, let's just give her hell and see what happens. And when I had finished, I actually beat him by close to 10 seconds. Wow. 
which was pretty significant, which I, at that point I knew I had just won nationals because I had just won that event by a large enough margin. And then since then, or I don't say since then, it might've been in conjunction with, but you've had, uh, there's three other times you've won your weight class at nationals as well. Is that accurate? Sorry, I, I didn't catch what you said there. Okay, I was saying um, in conjunction with that win, there may be three other times you've won your weight class at nationals. Is that number accurate or maybe you've won more? Yeah, I couldn't – maybe three. Maybe I'm not, I couldn't find the answers to that, so I was just guessing based on memory. Somewhere in that vicinity, three-ish. Okay. Um, I don't know where I finished, like, overall. Like, this year I won my weight class, but – I finished third overall behind Jen and Jason. And then you ended up tying this for this year's national. You like lifted 248 on Little Bighorn. Is that what you and Tim Butler topped out at? Yeah. That was going to lead me into. Thing <laughs> yeah, that which I was actually. To... Was, was that a PR for yeah. you? That was actually a contest PR for me, which okay. is crazy that I had because I hadn't been. I mean, my whole training the last two years since the baby was born has been very hit or miss. I kind of just do enough that I can kind of keep the motor patterns alive mm -hmm. of like how to grab stuff. I wouldn't say it's enough to actually build strength, but um, I, I mean, it, it worked. There'd been times where I'd been doing close to 260 in training and could only get like 240 in a contest. Mm -hmm. So I'd like been stuck at that 240 mark, 242. And then finally, I think I got 244 last contest, and then 248 was the highest I'd ever done in contest. Okay, now in just in reference to vertical lifts, you I think you hold like the jug record still in competition. You you might not know. Uh, Is that, I think that's like, for the full lift. Okay, yeah, for the full lift, not counting to six inch or whatever. Okay, but your vertical yeah. lifts across the board are very good. I was going to ask you a personal question that I wanted to know was uh, you kind of alluded to it earlier with saying that when you started off, you lifted like a half 70 blob, a 1.5 gripper, and you didn't necessarily have this big, like extreme intro where you just naturally were just insanely strong or something. It kind of late start to lifting and everything else. No. Um, so with these vertical lifts, because I'm somebody that if my wrist is kind of in a line, I'm like really strong. But when you start to like break my wrist down, I struggle with V-bar lifts. Does, for you to reach the level you're at for your vertical lifts, whether that's little bighorn, whether it's the jug, uh, like hilt type lift, is that something you had to really work at for the positioning or your wrist? Does it just naturally feel better in that position? No, it was definitely something that I had to work towards because the first time we did Little Bighorn was, what, the first year of King Kong or second year of King Kong, maybe. I can't remember what year it was, but I did like 150 pounds. And then within a year, a year and a half of that, I was already, I was at 210 to 220. So like I just figured out how to grab it, how to position it, how to talk it, all those things. So okay, and yeah, it was just to uh, figure it out over time. All right. Yeah. I didn't know if you just like walked up the first time and like you were just grabbing it and you're like, man, this just no, feels, this feels right in my hand. It feels great. Um, or if it's something that's like 
maybe you hated it the same way I'm hating it right now. And I'm still trying to like dial it in and figure it out, I guess. Um, yeah, I would say that's, that's how a lot of things have gone as far as like initially when I started would struggle for a bit until I figured out how to put my hand on it, where to lock your thumb or what, whatever on it and where to place your fingers. And then just kind of figuring out that motor pattern of kind of muscle activation and once it clicks, it, it could be night or day and it could go up a lot very quickly. Yeah. Cause I mean, you see guys sometimes in training, I mean, they pull crazy numbers and then like competition, it's 30 pounds lighter. So it definitely is a hit or miss lift sometimes for people and mm-hmm. for the reasons you're naming, but also just being a friction based lift, like you're known for being able to chalk implements. You wrote down, you know, you, a lot of people refer to you as a chalk whisperer. Um, I don't want to say how important is it for that lift. We, we all know how important it is, but could you maybe go into detail a little bit more about, I don't know, maybe something that works for you when chalking implements or, and that might vary through each implement, but like little bighorn, do you have like a certain way that you like to chalk that? And, and everybody's different, but just to talk about the importance of the friction for a lift like that. I don't yeah yeah they cut out again um I was just basically saying could you talk about the importance of uh chalking on a lift like Little Bighorn or if you have other lifts that you know what I mean you chalk differently for certain reasons just go into basically maximizing what you can lift on a friction lift really yes and that varies uh on the time of year depending on humidity in the air um the temperature in the room, um, a lot of it's just feel for me. So sometimes I have to remove chalk and start with a new base. Sometimes I have to use a lot more chalk to try to figure out uh, to get that appropriate texture. And a lot of times it takes two or three lifts after once you get things figured out to try to get that chalk to set in. So I naturally have very sweaty hands, which uh, in a way helps kind of a little bit of moisture helps the chalk stick to items. It's like blobs, a lot of chalk. I just like a lot of chalk on the little bighorn. Blobs definitely require a lot more chalk than kind of anything else, I would say. Um, plate pinching is another one that it depends on the plate. So like your calibrated plates that have paint versus a cast plate that is kind of more of a raw steel would depend on the texture. But they're going to generally be a lot more chalk on the raw steel. and not as much on the on the, the painted calibrated plates um because <clears throat> what happens a lot with a friction-based lift if you get too much chalk it actually makes it more slippery than it should be there's a joke that it, it makes it like there's ball bearings on the um on the surface um I'm not sure it, something with jed i don't remember who it was based on but the whole ball ball bearings thing is an inside joke there okay um <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to really say with like an exact science because it's a, it's a feel thing for me more than it is anything else. Yeah. And like you said, everybody's hands are going to be a little bit different. Um, yeah. I know talking to Ben Helms, he kind of has like sweatier, like clammy hands. So I think sometimes it helps him with uh, what he's lifting just because he kind of has that moisture already there. Whereas like I'm feeling the same, the same exact blob he's lifting and I'm like, 
this feels like shit, you know, this feels terrible. And he's like, Oh, it's perfect. And I'm yeah. like, I disagree. So uh, it's, it probably is just more, uh, more you just spending time and figuring it out. Now, have you ever, I used to do this when I first started, have you ever taken implements like on a non-training day or after you've lifted and then actually just spent like your free time chalking them for the next session? No, not never. I mean, the only time that was like when we first started, like when we get a new iron mind hub or like a blockbuster, when they use that like gloss paint yeah. and then we try to chalk it beforehand. But other than that, not really because just it kind of in the moment. Yeah. Okay. Like as we're warming up, cause sometimes like as you're warming up to get a little bit of the hand moisture in it, um, to kind of get the, the chalk to stick is kind of when the best to figure it out for me. But that's also one thing that I feel like um, I haven't had a, a like a training lift and then a huge drop in a contest because I feel like that's one thing that's super important to me when I go to lift is to make sure that the chalk and texture is, is the way it needs to be. Um, and I feel like other people don't take that as, as high of an importance as, as I do. And sometimes it can affect their lift because it, it's just something they're not thinking about. Yeah, they worry about hand position and like the way they're standing. But it like that's something that's super important to me as far as um, trying to get everything maximized for that moment and that lift. Well, and you see a lot of people too um, in those moments where, you know, they just walk up and kind of grab it. And I don't know if it's because they're on the spot. There's a little bit of pressure going. They maybe feel rushed, but they, they don't spend the time to take that extra five seconds to chalk it, make sure that it's feeling good before they get their hands on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that kind of shows like, I don't, it's just like a strong man, you know, kind of evaluating maybe like a natural stone before they try to pick it up. You're looking for certain things. You're looking for how that stone fits you uh, an easier way. You're trying to maximize the lift. I think it's very similar to uh, the chalking you're speaking of, but so many people just run up and grab stuff and they don't really think about, I guess, adjusting the texture. They just grab it how it is and just however the last person left it, that's how I'm going to try to lift it. And you don't have to be so rushed, I guess. I think a lot of people should kind of slow down and maybe evaluate, especially on friction lifts, evaluate the handle, the implement, and take the time you're talking about to you know really get the friction right before you start trying to take maximal pulls on it or before you get mad that you didn't set a PR in competition but you didn't even take into account yeah. one of the most important factors of the lift, which is the friction and getting the surface right. So um, I think it's a really good point. And I think it's something that you're kind of known for, or that's something that you've you know put out there that you're serious about. And that's why you end up, you know, landing 240 plus close to 250 pound lifts on little bighorn and things like that. Um, and with the jug coming up in King Kong this October, I, I assume you, if you're doing King Kong, you'll probably be up in that upper end of people as well for the same reason. Just, I mean, that's, that's the goal, but yeah. Are you, are you yeah. still going to be doing a 93 for King Kong? Yeah. Or that, yeah that's I'm actually going to be your class. Yeah. I weigh 208 is kind of my normal body weight, 208, 210. So it's, I rarely go much higher than that. Okay. And is that, um, I know that competition's kind of on your list. Do you have any other future competitions you're looking looking at right now, or is King Kong kind of it? <clears throat> well, I was hoping to make it to yours, but it doesn't look like my vacation's going to allow it. So, 
Um, so kind of disappointed in that, but unfortunately it, the September 2nd is our wedding anniversary. September 3rd is our, is our son's second birthday. Okay. And yeah, it's just a lot going like on. a bad time of year to, uh, to try to plan a grip contest with a vacation that whole week. And it's, it's just, it's just too much that I can't justify plus having my elk hunt three weeks later that I leave for that. So that's, it's just a lot going on in that one month span of yeah, September and, beginning of October and that's the other thing I was gonna bring up was we both hunt um and falls when you get into the fall it's like there's certain weekends there's certain weeks where it's like I'm not doing anything else because I have to hunt so that's why I asked knowing that you're getting yeah. close to that October that November when you start getting into those fall times it's like okay maybe Luke does King Kong but he might be focusing on this other stuff so um you said you got you have an elk hunt that you're going to be going. Um, are you? Uh, yeah, so that's the first week, first week of October. <clears throat> okay, so that's a little earlier. Um, yeah, I, I've never hunted elk. Um, I've only been to Colorado like one time or that far out west. I've you know camped out and seen them and stuff like that. Like while yeah. I was basically camping, not hunting. But uh, I've only been. I've to never Colorado hunted them like, either. Yeah, like four days in my life. So are you going out there, kind of just? Uh, with your past hunting experience and I don't want to say winging it, so to speak, but are you like kind of working with a guide or anybody to, uh, for like helping out or like anybody that has already kind of been out where you're going to kind of have an idea of what that's going to be like? No, this is a fully guided hunt in, in Northeastern okay. New Mexico. Um, there's three of us going, uh, two of us have never hunted elk. I've never hunted elk. And the other one has, hunted elk twice um but both of his other experiences were guided so none of us have really any background for elk hunting to do a diy we would literally be yeah. going on no experience and, so that's and, why we chose to go the guided route than a diy type of hunt and that's something that i've taken into consideration because i don't think a lot of people realize how expensive uh non-resident tags are just all the other stuff that comes with it and then once you get out somewhere it's like if you've never been there i mean i mean there are some of these people that maybe just have private land and they like sit on their back porch and can hunt or something but that's not really hunting to me yeah but to actually go out west and kind of hunt in that fashion if if you don't know the area and you haven't been out there kind of scouting around or you're not super familiar with the animal and you know the times of year and all that stuff doing it yourself completely is almost uh probably a waste of money okay so you're talking about doing a guided elk hunt out west and you're going to be in northern new mexico um and i was kind of just breaking down that like a lot of people don't understand that if you're not doing like a guided hunt and you don't understand the animals and you don't understand exactly like where you're even going uh you're pretty much just dumping a couple thousand dollars and probably it's a waste of time i mean do you feel like yeah, that's I mean, it yeah. It all depends on what the experience is. Cause some, I mean, some people may have a lot more free time, a lot more free money, and they may just want to go for the experience to hike around the mountains and potentially find an elk. Um, I want to go out and try to be as successful as I can. Cause I'm, I don't have necessarily have a lot of opportunity and time to do that. So like what would be optimal is if you could take a week in the summer to go scout an area, figure out kind of where the elk are, um, get there two, three days before the season starts um scout those two or three days and then once you find something you hopefully in the first couple of days of the hunt then you're successful um i don't have that time i have 
the, the six day window, seven day window to find, to get all that fit in. So, yeah. And then if you also do like the, the guided hunt, like you're talking about now, it's like anything else. I mean, you, you're, I mean, you're processing information and knowledge the entire time that you can keep with you for future hunts and stuff like that. So maybe over yeah. time it turns into you having more confidence than going out West and hunting other stuff or being at a point where you wouldn't want to do a guided hunt, but for, yeah, first, first time going out, first time hunting elk like that. Um, my personal opinion, I think guided hunt is absolutely probably the way to go for that. So for what it's worth, I, yeah. I think it's a good, good, a good call. Yeah. If you had a friend that you were going with, that's been out there multiple times in that area, then that's a different story. Yeah. Cause you're, you're basically going out blind. If you don't have, yeah. you know, like you said, somebody, you know, or anything else, it's, it's going out blind and you're basically gambling with hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars in travel and license tags, all the other stuff. So, um, I definitely get that. So you stay pretty busy. Um, like you said, you don't have a whole lot of time just to go out and do all this scouting and stuff. Um, just wanted to take time to talk about, uh, arm assassin strength shop in general. So I know we've talked about how you started off kind of doing some things on the side where you were making like wrist wrenches or certain pieces. And it kind of was just a side thing. At what point did that pick up and you started to realize like, Hey, this might be a full-time deal or man, these orders are picking up. Uh, when, when was that, I guess, realization or when did, when did that transition happen? So Memorial day of 2018 was the last time I worked full time as a physical therapist. Um, after that I had gotten a per diem job so I could kind of work as, as much as I needed as a per diem therapist and then do the business on the side. Um, so I was doing that probably two days a week and then doing the business three days a week for that whole next year. And then, um, as the year went along, as 2019 went along, I was, I got a lot busier as far as like number of orders. Uh, the money I was making was better because I was getting more orders. Um, I was still in my garage at the time. Um, and then beginning of 2020. So in January, 2020, I actually only worked one shift in 2020 and that was the last time i've done any physical therapy was in january of 2020 and i've been full-time pt or full-time arm assassin since then sometimes it's more than full-time yeah especially you kind of like you said being kind of like a almost a one-man army you know you don't necessarily like get to work the exact same hours every single day if you have more orders that might mean more work so yeah over time so to speak but yeah. I mean, it, it depends on the volume of orders you're taking in and what you have to get put out and certain deadlines. So yeah, you're probably not always working uh, scheduled hours or typical work hours. And I know you've often mentioned you get up a lot of times like four or five in the morning when you start. Yeah. So most day, most days I start, I wake up at four and I start by four thirty at the latest. Um, okay. That's mainly just to, especially during the summer is to get through with the heat. Like, so by 10 o'clock, it's like already getting to be way too hot to be in full welding attire. So I try to get as much as possible done by 10, 10, 30, 11. And then I do the packaging running if I need material and I kind of do all that stuff afterwards. But uh, yeah. And I mean, 
it's just easier. I'm a morning person. I like, as soon as my eyes are awake or our eyes are open, I'm awake. Like it takes me like five minutes and I'm ready to rock and roll for the day. But like someone like my wife, she is the complete opposite. So she's more of a takes an hour to relax and drink her coffee. And I'm like, drink my coffee on the go. Yeah. But it, so it works out good for that. What, uh, so like I said, you started with these smaller items that you're working on um, in the beginning. Was it difficult for you to like not only transition to bigger orders and bigger stuff, but like making Saxon bars, making these things? I'm, I'm sure there's probably like a learning curve with some of this stuff. Um, was it, I guess, like a rough transition or was it pretty, pretty natural and kind of just a slow progression the way it worked out? Because like, I mean, you've, you constantly have been adding stuff to the site over the last few years that even I've been um, aware of your company and supporting it and buying everything. Um, there's a lot of new, new things popping out constantly. So it's always evolving. Um, you're always kind of improving the quality of stuff or upping uh, the amount of items or, you know, just the variety of training stuff that you have for sale. But how hard is that to go from kind of making basic stuff on the side to your catalog now uh well as far as the big the biggest thing that happened was i actually bought i rent a large space now a a garage like it's a three-bay garage space that's uh, about five times the amount of square footage as i was working in okay so um yes it's a lot more overhead cost wise but it's allowed me to be way more efficient by having that extra space um and the so by being more efficient it's allowed me to be able to get more stuff done um, which has allowed me to kind of broaden the things i can make so if i have more time and i have more space i can make bigger items because i have more room to put them i have more room where i can package them um, and that's kind of where things have grown sometimes things on the website someone will ask for a custom item and then it'll become a regular item so it really just depends yeah. on uh what it is and then that item might now be offered in five different sizes instead of just one size that that original order was made by or maybe offered in different lengths uh, it just really depends on what the item is and where where the idea comes from because some things like uh say rogue makes this piece of equipment well they only offer it in one size well not everybody wants that one size so like how can i make this one piece now have 10 different sizes or 12 different sizes and lengths. Like, so you have different diameters, different lengths. And that's kind of where I feel like my business um, excels compared to these bigger companies is I have the ability to move any direction at a fast pace because I am just one person um, and be able to make custom. So if someone orders an item and they're like, oh, can I get this in standard plates instead of Olympic plates? I'm like, yep, no problem. It's because I make everything after order anyway. So uh the items that saxon bar that you mentioned like that's been something that's very common which arm lifting has been um pushing saxon lifts and plus also gsi has been having saxon in a lot of grip contests the last year so that's something that's been selling a lot yeah i was gonna say i know for like the olympia for arm lifting they just did the uh they announced a little while ago that they're gonna have a two by five saxon because normally they've yeah. only contained tested the three inch um so have you been getting blown up with a lot of two by five orders for saxon bar yeah i've i've made like ooh, probably 
35 sacks and bars in the last month. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and I'd probably say it's a uh, 60% are two by fives. Yeah. And normally that wouldn't be the case because we'd normally be going by three inch, but like I said, you can tell that when, when, when something's being contested, everybody kind of wants to train on that implement and get hands on it. Yeah. So then you're going to see that influx of orders. Um, do you have a, do you have a piece of equipment that's your favorite to make from like the fabrication standpoint? I wouldn't say favorite. I, I would say I have a lot that I don't mind making. And then there's a few that I just don't like making. Okay. What, what, what what's like the so, biggest, what, what's the biggest pain in the ass? Like what's the one when you get the order, you're just like, man, like this, this is annoying. Well, that risk, the, the new like little wrist curl trainer, but I price that appropriate that because it is a pain in my ass to make that it, I'm like, well, it's, it, it's worth it to make it because the price pays for the, the inconvenience of having to make it and get everything lined up. Um, but I mean, arm wrestling tables take a long time as far as like profit, they're a low profit item. Um, but what happens generally with an arm wrestling piece of equipment, when you buy a table, you buy handles. So handles are more of a profitable piece. So the table is more of like an entry fee entryway into a, um, a, the business versus a, the other way around. So. Yeah. You're kind of breaking the ice and then everything else that comes with it is like, yeah, you know, once, once, once your foot's in the door, then it's like, well, you're going to need these attachments similar to some other grip stuff too, because yeah. I mean, you can buy like certain frames. Like if we talk like one hand nightmare, napalm's nightmare, um, you could buy the frame, but clearly you're going to want a couple different diameters to work with. If we're talking yeah. rolling handles or we're talking pinch blocks, I mean, then you start branching out into, three, four, five, you know, they're probably more combinations that someone could come up with. So, um, yeah. And that, yeah. I mean, I, that's probably the most, I would say that of all the things that I've made, even though the original idea of the two hand napalm nightmares is, is based on something that Jed came up with the idea of taking that one piece of equipment that started with interchangeable handles and then basically broadening it to I don't know, 12, 13 different pieces of equipment that you can now use those same handles on this. I would say that's kind of my, I'd say that's the best thing that idea that I've come up with as far as a general business model um, is to have that modular system of all these different pieces that you can use the same handles that just interchange out of different diameters, whether they're cylinders or whether they're blocks or whether they're ingot shaped or whatever, but I am going to get freaking rained on right now. And <laughs> I got to move because it is getting black. <laughs> back, <laughs> it's thundering and lightning. Back to the hunting room. <laughs> hopefully the, uh, hopefully the signal will hold up as you move around and everything. Yeah. <laughs> that's all. Yeah. Good. The, it's just a couple of bolts of lightning over the hill and thunder, you know, all those things that are not good to be happening. We'll move back to the, the gun room okay but yeah i'll let you get set up whatever um hopefully it'll stay uh service wise yeah because it, it worked earlier i mean fine so uh so you would say probably the just that let's say the invention but yeah just being able to swap out the different handle sizes is probably one of your favorite things that you've like come up with as like a business model because i've, I've seen you set up like uh pull up I mean, custom pull-up stations, but those handles can be interchanged again. All right, so 
Luke had a storm roll in, having some connection issues, but just going to kind of dive back in, um, discussing kind of like the the napalm system or just having the ability to change different handle sizes. I was just mentioning that like I've seen you do like custom pull-up mounts where the handles can be changed, uh, farmer handles, things like that, where the handles can be swapped out. So I think that that's one place that you're kind of right where these other big companies might offer something in one size, but the, the variance you have and the products you make and the handle sizes and how interchangeable everything is, is definitely something that you don't really find anywhere else. And then also I would say, and this isn't just because you're sitting here, but um, at, at the price point that you have it listed for, for the price, for how fast things ship, um, as easy as you are to work with and customer service wise, I just don't think that a bigger company can uh, customize things as well and have that much variance in their training equipment. You know, it's kind of like one and done for them. And that's what you get. Whereas with you, everything is kind of more hands-on and custom, but I mean, you're getting the same quality. It's getting to you probably just as fast or faster. And you just have like a hundred more options with it. I mean, would you kind of agree with that to some extent? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. So everything is made after someone orders it, which yeah, you don't get that instant like ship the next day, but my turnaround time is five to seven days. And like I said, it's all made after the purchase. And I stay by that five to seven business day turnaround pretty rigidly. Uh, I think there's been just a handful that I've, it's like where the seventh day is like a Sunday. So I got to wait till Monday anyway. So it's like, ends up being an extra day, but um, yeah. And like a lot of times with, with custom orders, people with some custom, it's like, well, it's not the same. So now I'm going to charge you more. I'm like, well, is it the same for me to make it as this custom order or versus the normal? Then why would I charge more money for something that's going to be the same amount of work? It might be a dollar or two different price wise for material, but that's not something that I'm, that I'm generally concerned about. So. Okay. And then as far as uh, we mentioned how like the pickup um, with the arm lifting, using the two by five Saxon has kind of picked up some sales in that regard. Is there any other like trend or any other items that are kind of hot items right now that you're noticing, or is it pretty much just uh, kind of standard across the board? Um, I mean, the napalm stuff has always been stayed pretty consistent as far as like um, people ordering handles, ordering one handed nightmare, or like, like I said, pull up bars, wall mounted, rack mounted. Um, so that whole system has been pretty pretty busy arm wrestling like the, the webbing type handles been pretty steady. Um, 30 to 40 items that, that depending on like contests whether it be arm wrestling or if somebody that's prominent on social media posts a video using a, a different piece um, then you'll get like an influx of orders of that item. Yeah. Um, do you have anything new kind of in the works maybe that you haven't made yet or any new items or a training item that hits something differently, or is it pretty much kind of got most of your catalog kind of established? Um, and then if a good idea pops up, maybe you'll make something new, but for the most part. Yeah. So there's, I mean, a couple new items so that I'm Timmy, Livingston made that it's like a rolling pull-up bar but it's just a single handle 
single mm -hmm. rolling. So it's like both hands are connected um, and that's interchangeable. So I just added that to the website. Um, the hand thigh lift bar that Devin Hoover has been using, I added that as like a, well, I don't, I don't know if I added that. I got I got to get a picture of one first before I add it. But and then also the 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 bar to load. So like Alex uh, Guija or however you pronounce his last name. Yeah. So In basically it's like a it's a heavy lift bar. So it's like a standard length bar, but the center section is like only 16 inches long, and then the rest of it is loadable. So like if you're doing like a hand thigh lift with like. 1500 pounds you have enough room on it to be able to do it so yeah that's kind of the two the newest stuff that i have as far as um items too oh and then an item i for, i've made a few but i forgot to add to the website was like uh so they're napalm handles but they're so it's like an offset so like can holly it up like dumbbell where you can add the weight and your thumb side and kind of get the pair, pair center of access off the, out of the center to one side so that you can kind of train it like a like an inch dumbbell lift where it wants to rotate by putting that that side more on your thumb so those are kind of the newer items that i've, I've added um recently but like i said it's just random stuff that they all this would work and the stuff i've made that i never even took pictures of that i don't even have on the website because i just i'm terrible at taking pictures like i will make an item i'll package it and be like crap i forgot to take a picture screw it i don't feel like unwrapping it and <laughs> yeah that type of stuff as you know how much how fun the black plastic wrapping is to take apart yeah no i've, I've ordered a decent amount of stuff from you um i I don't want to like try to guess what it is. I think one time I like put it all in a big pile and sent you a picture of it, but yeah. I had, uh, I've had quite a few, uh, quite a few things and that's from the, I mean, multiple t-shirts, couple hats, um, just all the lifting stuff, different bars. So, um, yeah, no, I've definitely, um, your company was one of the first I really came across because I mean, I found out about this stuff from, you know, watching like, jed or like adam glass videos and stuff you know on yeah. youtube so that's where i really kind of found this stuff out and then you kind of see what implements people are using or what's being contested and then the stuff i'm looking for you know these pinch blocks these rolling handles it's like i kind of found your site pretty early and uh you know I, I didn't know you at that time and then um you know getting to meet you and compete with you and compete against you at certain times is uh has made it better because now, you know, I kind of put a, a face with the business and stuff like that. So it's always cool when you're doing business or promoting a business and you actually kind of know the person and you get along with the person or, you know what I mean? They're cool in person as well. So that, that, that definitely helps. Well, I appreciate it. Um, did you have any other kind of like, uh, I don't know, like a different lane you wanted to travel down, any other topics to kind of touch on maybe that, uh, I don't know, different experiences. I, I mean, I could come up with stuff on, on the fly, like nothing, but is there anything on your mind that you would maybe want to address or uh, put out there for people? Um, I mean, one general thing, as far as like people that are new to the sport, um, I would definitely help reach out to people that have been doing it for a while to get some like jet offers ebooks coaching i mean i couldn't say like if you don't have someone to train with in person like, like that type of stuff is gonna speed up your 
learning curve exponentially because some of us just like basic of like where to place your hand on a hex block versus a blob like depends like those things can matter a whole lot and then like where to stand compared to a euro or a flask um so i think that's that's one thing i would say to anybody that's new is um one guess try to get with people or go to a contest a couple contests where people that have been doing it for a while are and um that's places you can learn because it might you might not you might not necessarily get a ton of info during contest because it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose type of thing but um i mean the after after contest lifting and feats and all that stuff is where you you can have fun and enjoy and hang out and kind of learn it in a relaxed pace but so that's just one thing i would recommend for anybody yeah and that's something that uh I've done. I mean, like Jed's lift the blob book. I recommend that to so many people just because I like kind of like the history, all the pictures of the old blobs and kind of just breaking it down because there's so many people that, you know, they don't know the difference between like, what's a York roundhead? Well, what's a fat man? Or they call a next gen a fat man. And they, they just don't even know, you know, that's a legacy. Well, what makes that a legacy? And it's like a lot of this information is either in videos out there by, you know, Jed or other, a lot of other people put stuff out there. Um, or even if you just check guys that are lifting blobs, but like you said, just, you know, where to place your hand, where to stand, stuff like that. So I, I've been one of those people that someone might look at me and say, I've done some decent lifts, That's but fine. I'm always quick to uh, pretty much snag like any ebook or any training tool I can or watch videos nonstop and just study and analyze uh I guess the best guys doing it or someone that's at a higher level than me and then try to use that information. So I, I basically second that advice as far as uh, getting your hands on some eBooks and trying to speed up the process, because if you just think you're going to figure it out on your own or, you know what you're doing, you, you might end up lifting the same numbers on the same handles for two to three years. And then, Oh, well, what happened to that guy? Well, he didn't make any progress and didn't want anybody coaching him. Didn't want to buy anything. And then they just kind of fade off or sell their stuff. Yeah. Um, but we've, we've probably seen that a few times or more than a few times, I guess. But uh, yeah, there's definitely been a, I mean, and these are people like that when I came into the sport, um, the whole cult say a lot of the people don't even compete anymore. As far as like the big names, um, Paul Knight, Andrew Derniat, um, Eric Milfeld, um, uh, Brent Barbie, he was a moderator on the grip board for a while. Uh, Chris Rice, I mean, Chris is getting up in age, um, but he was always someone that I was driving to try to be at grip mess. Even 35, I don't know, probably 38 years older than I am. He's like double my age. So, um, yeah. But it, those people, came into the, or they were there in the sport, but a lot of them aren't in it anymore. It's a lot of new faces. I mean, obviously Jed's still in it. Um, a few other people that have been around a while, but like yeah, Tanner, Adam, Gil, haven't seen any of those guys compete in a lot, in a few years. Yeah. Um, all, and the, those are the, and those are guys that are super strong. So it's like, did they just lose interest? Other, other hobbies? Not really sure. Yeah. And that's something that um, I might, you know, if I get a chance to speak with those, those type of guys or that group of guys, um, 
that's stuff I might dive in and ask them, you know, is there a, a plan to return to grip? Um, what, you know, just other interests, life got in the way. You just kind of been there, done that, did it for a decade. And now, you know, time for a new chapter. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people have those kind of questions. And a lot of the names you're dropping are like names that when I first found out about this stuff, I mean, it's just their names are in every video. Like you said, like the Andrew Derniak, Cody Burns, Adam Glass, Tanner Merkel. It's just like, these are the names you're seeing, like Luke Raymond, uh, Jed Johnson. So it, these are the names that like my first intro is just seeing all these people. And I, I'm very good at like uh, memorizing stuff. So I just see these names and then just start seeing like all the lifts they do and go down the list. But yeah, a, a lot of that, I don't want to consider it like the golden era of grip, so to speak, but it it is kind of like, for a lot of us newer people, it's it, those names are kind of the ones that we look up to, or that was our introduction to grip. So a lot of those guys just recently stopped competing kind of in the last couple of years. So it is interesting to maybe reach out and talk to them a little bit about why, or just pick their brain about it, I guess, because I've, I've noticed the same thing. Yeah, um, as far as like, and there was a lot fewer grip events back then. Cause they, they, a lot of times they just competed with the same like grippers, axle and a pinch variation, which a lot of the time was Euro. Um, that was the primary, the three primary movements, which they had the elite numbers based on. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would like to see that come back, but then maybe adopt it to newer implements. So like the two hand napalm nightmare, uh, maybe a two hand flask or, or you could interchange flasking Euro and have them if someone wanted to use either or. Um, but that was always something that when I first started was a kind of a drive to move into a weight class elite number. And then you yeah. have the overall elite, which I still don't even reach the overall elite. It was like 800 pounds between those three lifts. And that's something similar to kind of like a powerlifting format. Yeah. Like, you know, you can reach elite in these three lifts, but with grip, we have so many different, uh, so many different lifts that we're contesting and the implements have kind of evolved or changed what's been contested. So it, it kind of makes it hard to pin down like, well, what three or four things should we use to categorize elite, you know, or if we do pinch, well, what's, what, what's the most contested or standardized pinch item that would be best. Or if we're doing thick bar, well, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's hard to say because there's a lot of variance now where like you're saying back then they're, there was kind of more of a staple of a few things and you could pretty much gauge similar to powerlifting, you know, here's your bench squat and dead. So that's where it's at. Um, but I think it's a good idea. And I spoke to a lot of other people. Um, Chaz strange is one of those people, stranger grip. He's, he's mentioned that before and in, in talks and stuff about trying to get some kind of uh, a total back into grip or find out you know certain events like you said maybe there's two things in this category that could be used to that are similar but i don't know i it would, i think it would motivate a lot of people and it'd be pretty cool to have again just to kind of say that you're on a certain level or yeah. just something to strive for other than pulling random numbers on random stuff and aside from maybe shooting for the best in your weight class or trying to get up the leaderboard list you don't really have a uh, a title placed on it you can see your name on a list, but you don't have a title like, oh, I I hit a elite total in this or that. So I think it's a pretty, pretty cool idea. And I think it was you know, probably a good, good thing back then for a lot of people. I just don't know how we would go about doing it these days or who would be in charge of selecting 
what implements we're going to go by because there's probably going to be a ton of debate there and everything else. So, yeah, I mean, and maybe you do it, you have one contest on the East coast, one contest on the West coast every year that have those specific movements. So you can kind of use that each of those lifting uh, for like, they have a gripper, a pinch and and an axle. And that's the contest each year. And if you want to go to it and to try to make your way onto this elite list, you have to go to that. I mean, that's just an idea to make it more convenient so that you have kind of the same area. No. And I, I think that but like that would, that would be good. Yeah. You just have to get, probably get some people on the same page with it. Um, yeah. But I, I feel like, I guess this would be another good question would be in general, do you feel like uh, grip, and grip sport is kind of growing or do you feel like it's kind of leveled out? Um, maybe it comes and goes in waves. Um, where do you see the sport right now compared to when you first were into it? You said there's more stuff being contested and there was less competitions back then, but uh, overall, like that grip scene compared to today's grip scene, what are some of the differences or maybe even similarities if you want to kind of touch on that? Yeah, so I definitely think it's bigger as far as like the the number of competitors that are competing in either uh, like a grip sport international based comp- um, arm lifting, whether it be arm lifting USA or in the different countries. Um, so I mean, it's been it's been good as far as that. Um, there is some de- divisiveness between the different kind of federations that disagree on the way things are run with lockout versus uh, crossbar lift. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think those are good at the same time because not everybody has to agree. I think as long as you develop a set of rules and then you follow those rules, how they're supposed to be, whether it be um, a lockout or a crossbar or, and then the judging just needs to be done at it with a high level. I mean, that's, that's, that's always been the issue of stuff like a lockout lift is the, the judging can be a little suspect and then people are getting lifts that normally wouldn't pass. Um, and oh. whereas a knock bar, there's no subjective. It's like you either hit it or you don't. And the, the piece of it, did the handle stay in your hand while you lowered it to the ground, plain and simple. And uh, also just another thing to add to that is the grip world, even though maybe it's more popular now and there's more stuff going on, it's still a very small community. Right. And at a lot of these venues or competitions, when you are judging a lockout and stuff like that, um, a lot of times the person hosting it maybe has to lift as well. And then it's like, well, who's judging you? Is it a training partner? Is it a friend? I think it's hard to sometimes find a kind of a neutral party in such a small community because we're, we're such a small community that a lot of times it's the same faces or your friends or people you've talked to. And then they're the ones that are either judging your lifts or you're judging theirs. And it can pop up, you know, that, you know, did you really get that lift or did you give it to him? Cause it's your training partner. Oh, that was close. So I, I think that's another issue. It's, it's hard to find kind of a, I guess a third party judge or someone that's kind of neutral and stepped out of the competition that can maintain that standard. Sometimes I think their judgment gets clouded because they're, they're lifting around their friends and they want everything to go well and they're hyped up and maybe they're not judging from a, I don't know, like a stone cold, just judging. I'm, I'm here to judge. I'm not friends with nobody. I don't, I don't care who lifts what it's the rules. And maybe if we could find or have somebody that could kind of keep it that black and white, when it comes to these rule sets, 
it might make for cleaner judging or cleaner competitions, but yeah. I mean, I think having more than one judge would help that even if it's someone that's there just as a secondary person, um, videotaping each lift so that you could review it. And then the judges kind of be like, Oh, I'm not sure if that was a good lift or not. So let's go to a video review real quick. Um, like most major sports, I mean, most major sports, you have a challenge or you have a replay, instant replay and calls can get reversed. Um, especially when that judge has a split second to decide something or see it with their eyes. I mean, they, they might've been looking at one portion of the lift and it was good and kind of missed another because there's a lot going on. And uh, yeah, I mean, so many other sports have kind of instant replay. And I want to say out of the last couple, I mean, this is only, you know, probably the first five interviews I've done. Maybe I have some in the vault that, you know, I'll release whatever, but um, as far as the interviews and, most of the people, when we get on the subject of this uh, pulling to a knock bar, pulling to lockout type stuff, the possible second judge or video replay has been a very common theme. So yeah. I think that now with someone of your experience, the other people I've spoke to, the fact that this is like the third or fourth time I'm hearing it, it's like, this might be something that we take an episode and maybe I get three or four other people on here. Cause I plan on doing more than just interviews. I plan on actually doing like topic discussions sometimes or like debates or whatever you want to call it. And uh, that might be a good subject, just judging in general and how we could improve judging, but you're not the first person to recommend a video replay or a second judge. It's like the third person in a row that's mentioned a second judge to me. So um, yeah, like I said, as a judge, you have to be willing to call a no lift on somebody or incidental bracing or whatever. Um, I mean, I judged the one year I didn't compete at the Arnold, and I had to call a no lift on Ode because the bar slip was slipping out of his hand as as he locked it out. The other ju- the other judge, so we had three judges, a center and two sides, and everybody else called it good. And I said, no, he did not have control of the bar at lockout, so it's no lift. Yeah. And like it was two, and so the the head judge gave him the down call, but I said no because it was slipping. So at that point, it becomes no lift. And I'm like, I don't like I don't, I didn't care. Like I don't care who it is for me. It's just like, is it a good lift or is it not? And if it, and if someone at lockout is beginning to lose it as you reach lockout, um, then it's not. It's just the bar's moving. It's, you're not in control of it, so it's no lift. Yeah. I think that's one of the hardest parts to judge is kind of right there when you get to those maximal lifts is, you know, did you reach lockout and then the bar kind of opened your hand up and then you can kind of write it down and maybe that's a good lift or was it starting to open and pry your hand, like your hands started to open and it's slipping and then you think you're kind of standing up straight, but the bar is already going back down. I think that's like the biggest thing with lockout where guys will, confuse it because i see so many times that you know the bar's coming up their body continues up and then the bar kind of stalls and then they'll still give them the down call because their body kept moving up but you have to like see the i think you need to kind of see the control in the hands as well so i think it's a good point you're bringing up and yeah i mean that's something that uh i mean i've hosted mostly smaller stuff so far like multi-venue like the king kong type stuff but for heavy hands, if we're hosting a big thing, I mean, it's, it's very likely that depending on how me and Ben break up the judging, but I mean, I might have to look at somebody like Eric Roussein, who's been doing this for, I don't know, 
10 plus years and pulling 400 plus on the axle, I might have to look at him and say no lift. And it doesn't matter that it's Eric. It doesn't matter that it's Jed or or whoever, you know, I mean, if, if I'm judging it at that moment, you can't worry about who, who it is. You have to look at the lift as, as it is by the rules. Who's, who's lifting. It's like, if it's a day one lifter or if it's Jed Johnson lifting it, like doesn't matter. The rules are the rules. So um, I definitely, uh, I definitely think that, your take on that and keeping the integrity of the lifts and the competitions is, uh, is, is, is very important because so, so often we see lifts get passed that shouldn't be. And, uh, it, like I said, it can be hard to tell your friends. No, it can be hard to tell the leader of an organization. No, you didn't lift it. Or maybe somebody you've looked up to in this community. And I don't want to say they're like a, a hero or something, but maybe, you know, somebody you've been coached by and then you're hosting a competition and the same dude that's coaching you, you have to be like, no, you didn't have it. And yeah, they might get pissed or something, you know, like, but you have to do it. You have, I mean, for the sake of the sport, because the more you start getting lenient, the more the floodgates open. And yeah, next thing you know, slow. you start, you start just disintegrating years of history. You start destroying leaderboards, you start destroying lifts, implements, and it only takes a handful of competitions where someone's lenient or messing something up. And it can pretty much just tarnish everything before it because now you have five guys that did incomplete lifts and they just took the world record and made it sixth place or something like that uh does that kind of make sense there yeah i mean that's what that's what happened with the iron mine axle with mike burke's record that he had for i mean it was there for five years before they got rid of it because that was i mean it's 100 percent not a complete lift like he totally mm-hmm. didn't have control of it at lockout and they still accepted it as a as the world record and it sat there for a while until they decided to remove it because it wasn't an actual good lift which yeah i mean i'm happy they did it but what took five years all you need to see was one video and then be like no that's not a lift sorry (laughs) yeah and then since then i think uh carl myersko has the current record i believe for the iron mind axle yeah Um, i'm not sure what what exactly it is i mean he set the rogue axle at the at the arnold also they, they, yeah, they were up like 550 around there. But I want to say for the Iron Mind one, um, just because that one has kind of the most history to it and we're referencing like the Mike Burke lift and, and stuff like that. Um, I think Carl lifted like 526 or 527. Yeah. So I'm, I'm talking pounds. It's like, yeah. I, I, I couldn't, I don't want to try to do the math in kilos. I'm a pounds person when I lift yeah. usually. So um I'm getting better at some of the kilo conversions and stuff like that. But yeah, so I, I think Carl, it was definitely 520 something. Um, I want to say 527. So if I'm off a pound or two, sorry, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, but, but, and, and that was um, going off memory of that lift a uh, much better lockout than the previous one that was removed or whatever with Mike Burke. Um, have you, have you seen the lift that Carl did on it? Uh, I feel like I have somewhere, but okay. I can't say with a hundred percent certainty that I remember. Okay. But uh, yeah, I, in, in my opinion, definitely a, a cleaner lift and uh, I don't know, just better, but yeah. So been going at it for a minute. Like I said, we had some uh, connection issues and stuff, you know, bouncing around the viewers or list. Well, the listeners aren't going to get it as much, but like, if you view this on YouTube in the future, you're going to see Luke with like six or seven different backgrounds. So um, 
inside, be- outside, <laughs> rainstorm coming through. <laughs> yeah, all the all the taxidermy and stuff yeah. in the hunting room. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, you had that kind of last thing for uh, people getting into the sport. Um, ebooks, just getting to competitions, competing, trying to learn. Um, do you have any kind of closing statement, maybe? Uh, aside from that for the new people or just anything you'd like to throw out there as we kind of wrap up, because uh, like I said, we've had a lot of connection errors and stuff like that. We still had a lot of good stretches where we have good points. Um, But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the floor is yours pretty much. So, I mean, if you have anything else that you think we didn't touch on or I don't know, uh, just a good, good subject, good topic. You can. Yeah. I mean, I'd say, I mean, biggest thing is, if you can try to stay healthy, I mean, other than like skin tears and like that normal thing, like that's going to happen to everybody, no matter what. And yeah, you take a week or two off and it comes back, but there are some lifts that are higher risk. And it's, it's one of those things that you take a chance. If you want to do it, then it's up to you. But um, as far as my training, I've gotten to the point where I just train things that I enjoy. If I don't enjoy it, then I don't even really waste my time with it because I'm so limited on my time to be able to, to actually grip train. Um, so yeah, it may affect my contest lifts and all this stuff, but at the end of the day, it makes me want to continue to do grip and continue to enjoy the sport. Um, cause like you said, there was people that were in it for 10 years and they just left, like they stopped doing it, whether, um, not sure where they went, but, um, I'm on t- year 10 and I con- want to continue to, to, to compete um at, at at a fairly high level i would say um there's some lifts i'm just not gonna ever get to a high level um but, so i gotta just focus on pinch v-bar um try to get my thick bar up as, as as well as i can it's always been something i've struggled with but um and then just kind of keep at it because it's a it's a marathon it's not it's definitely not a sprint as far as your training goes and like me like we talked about earlier like I didn't progress fast. Like it took me like two and a half years before I even pulled 200 pounds on any sort of pinch device two handed. Like Mm -hmm. it took a long time and I was training three to four days a week with Jed, um, with someone that had lots of knowledge, lots of background. And yeah. So you, you weren't that guy that was just lifting by yourself and couldn't figure it out with terrible form. You had a good coach, somebody that was knowledgeable right there and you still had kind of slow gains, you know, through the implements. So, but like I said, it's, it's just been consistency and, and there's been times where I take the summer off and I play golf and I do other things and I might do like three or four grip sessions the whole summer, but it's, and then come back to it in the fall, winter, spring. Um, but it's also kept my passion there because I, I don't feel burnout ever. Like I just kind of switched to something else, but that's just me. I, have too many hobbies anyways as far as golf hunting and then add now adding a a family and kid involved in it just gets a little bit more complicated but i wouldn't change it for anything so yeah absolutely and uh as somebody that's basically going into probably their third year of competing um i've only been competing about two years um it's it's cool when guys like you or Jed or, you know, the other people we've mentioned throughout this podcast do stick around, you know? So I, I kind of, I don't know if that's selfish or not because they might have good reasons for why they're not training or why they don't want to do it. Um, but 
yeah, I mean, I would love it if uh, if some of these guys that haven't competed in a couple of years came out and just, I don't know, maybe just shake it up a little bit. Maybe you got some competition where everybody's like, oh, man, yeah, we kind of know how everybody's going to do it. And then it would be awesome if, uh, I don't know, like it might be a stretch, but like it'd be awesome if like Andrew Derniat just came out one time and just see what you pull. Yeah. It's going to be probably crazy regardless. Um, it'd be cool, you know, if, if uh, just unexpected Adam Glass popped up one time and just, hey, I'm at this thing. And it's like, oh, shit. Like, I, I would just love to see that as somebody that's newer to the sport. But that's why, like I said, it's uh, it's cool when people like uh, you, Jed, I, I can name 100 others. I say you and Jed because you're both right there in that, you know, kind of that same area. And we're talking right now. But uh, it's just cool when the bigger names kind of stick around and you get to kind of pick up that knowledge in person or you get to compete alongside and you can almost learn something from everybody at these competitions and stuff. So the more of those bigger names that were like at the top, when I first found out about it two or three years ago, I would love for those guys to still be competing because I'd like to go against them. I would like to learn from them. And when they're not, uh, you know, whether it's travel or whatever the issue is, but if they're just not competing and their numbers aren't getting thrown out there, it, uh, I don't necessarily need that to motivate me. I'm still motivated to just beat my own numbers and, you know, compete against the current crop of people. But you want kind of those people that were there before you that you're kind of chasing after to yeah. kind of show up and kind of see where you're at. I don't know. It's just a, a little extra boost for me at least. Yeah, I mean, like you said, at the end of the day, it's about progressing against your own, yourself. Like, yeah, I, I go to contests and hopefully I can win my weight class. But at the end of the day, my goal is to lift what I hope I can lift. And that's and if I lose and I lift all my lifts and I do well on my lifts, whatever, like it's not the end of the world because like someone else had a better day. But I did everything I could to be successful that day. And that's and at the end of the day, it, that's all you can do. Yeah, and that's and that's probably good advice, too for others that are trying to get into the sport that just focus on yourself. I mean, whether it's one pound, five pounds at a time climbing up, focus on yourself. And uh, yeah, obviously, you know, look ahead. I wouldn't look down. Um, yeah. Look, no, no. look, look up and chase yeah. those bigger lifters, the bigger leaderboards, but don't get, don't, don't get like looking so high up the mountain that you, you almost discourage yourself. Or like you said, maybe the sport doesn't become fun and you lose your passion, uh, passion for it because you know, you're this guy outlifted you by 150 pounds on an axle or something. And now you're just like, Oh, I'm, you know, well, what's, what's, you know, what does that really have to do with you just getting your sets done or getting your work done and bumping your lift up five or 10 pounds, you know? So uh, I think it's good advice all around. So whether it's newer lifters or people that are kind of on their own um, yeah, just, training stuff that you enjoy but if it's something that you don't enjoy ask the guys that are good at it what what they do you know why is what why are you so good at this yeah. lift hey and then just take that info it might be a lift you hate but if you can still increase it a little bit it might just help your performance if you plan on competing or it might get you over uh, some hump in training that you didn't think you'd ever overcome so like i said kind of generic advice that seems common sense but i think it's worth noting um but I, I think people can repeat that, but can they actually take it to heart? Because uh, as I started caring less about like my standings and like where I place and just how I did personally, as far as like 
my lifts, I was way, I'm way happier as, and enjoy the sport way more because there's no pressure on myself. It's like, yeah, go have fun and do, do what you can. Well, and that's and that like, maybe because uh, I'm training less versus tra- like, I feel like when you train a lot, you set these expectations that you need to meet and can sometimes be a negative because you're putting so much pressure on yourself that absolutely you're not, you're not going through your normal pre lift routine. You're, you're, you're stressing out about a lift. Well, like, what if I miss this lift? What if like, if you're thinking about that and be like, versus like, screw it, I'm going to give it hell. Let's add five more pounds and see what happens. And, and if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you're like, well, whatever. Yeah. This is similar to like uh, two years ago at nationals, you were basically like running your arm assassin booth. Cause there was a whole like arm wrestling uh, yeah. tournament going on as well. So, I mean, there was even times during warmups, you're like making sales and selling equipment down here. And then you're just having, like you said, no pressure on yourself. You're just bouncing back and forth between running your business, jumping in on warmups and maybe miss a couple jumps, but you're not like freaking out about it or being negative or getting annoyed at it. You're just, just, you know, you're kind of just having fun with it and then still also performing and winning your weight class too. So, um, I'm probably guilty of that in the past as well. You know, you, you train so much so often all the me, time to where you, you get these me. expectations and uh, then, you know, you, you, you go five pounds, 10 pounds under a couple of those lifts. And next thing you know, it's like, I don't know, you're just ready to like explode and freak out. And it's just, it's kind of like, dude, there's going to be this. another tournament, another competition. And uh, so I, I think your approach is uh, from, from somebody who's been here, as long as you have done as well as you have to almost say that kind of less is more when it comes to this subject and say that your passion for the sport or your energy for the sport is probably in a better place because you're doing it less and there's less pressure on you is probably uh, a lot of good advice for these other people too. That way you're not like living and dying by some expectation when you get there that you almost ruin yourself. So I don't know. I, I don't think I could say it any better than you did. That's probably, um, probably it, but yeah. So, um, overall Luke, man, I've had a good time talking to you. Um, like I said, I'm going to have to edit some stuff because there was some hangups with the connection, but that's, you know, yeah, like I said, if, if, if I could, if I could drive 10 hours and, you know, to everybody and across the country and just fly in. And like you said, time, it's the same reason you have, you know, less time to train because you're running a business. You're about to do an elk hunt. You know, you have a kid family. There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, If I could do every interview in person and have a team around me filming stuff. Yeah, I would do it and we'd have no mix-ups, but um, I'm not a big tech guy. I'm just working with what we got. And uh, I'm going to at least get some editing practice because I'm going to have to piece all these things together and try to make them make sense. Um, so in a way, even though it was a, a little shaky at certain points for the interview, um, it's probably going to help future episodes if anything happens, or it's just going to help me be better at editing. So in a way, these kind of screw ups with the connection might turn out to be a good thing. It just might temporarily annoy somebody if they're like, man, they were on a good subject and then it just stopped. And, but yeah. like I said, we can't control that. So we'll just, uh, kind of do what we do and, uh, like I said, you'll probably make me better for it because I'm going to have to go in and kind of edit some things and figure it out. And uh, other than that, man, uh, look forward to probably buying some more stuff from you. And well, speaking of that, okay. uh, 
5% off using the code, code, the grip show for anybody that uses that code for the rest of forever. So, okay. So you want that to be like a discount code, a discount code yep, from the, the grip show. Okay. Um, and, I, and I'm a hundred percent cool with that. And that's something that I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put out there and, um, just make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm promoting that as well on my end. So, uh, yeah, that, 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 that means a lot to the show and me and that probably means a lot to a lot of other people because i uh like i said bought plenty of stuff from you i'm sure it won't be the last time and uh just want to keep supporting you and the business and anybody that needs to find the website also it's just armassassinstrengthshop.com right or uh, i i actually have the don't armassassin.com you can is the the shorter way to get okay okay so you don't have to worry about writing the rest of it out but okay so yeah um but that's where you can find Luke's stuff at. Um, and like he said, you're going to get whatever you want. Um, it's pretty much made to order. There's already a, a huge catalog on there. And I'm trying to think of how to put it. Um, there's already a big catalog on there, but if you need something customized, it's made after the fact. Luke's very easy to communicate with, very easy to get along with and do business with. And you're going to get it within that that window that he said he sticks by because as a customer who's got probably bought 30 or 40 items from you, I think everything I've ever gotten has shown up early. I don't think I've ever had a late shipment whatsoever. I think everything's been a day or two early, not to like, yeah, put the pressure on for future people ordering. Well, yeah. Like, I mean, once that it, guy, once it leaves my hands, I can't promise what happens with FedEx or UPS or USPS. So yeah, that's that's on them. So yeah, the shipping, the people shipping it have a hand in it as well. But as far as what Luke does on his end, everything has shipped very fast for me. Been been very uh, convenient and stuff I train with a lot of times. Um, you know, weekly I'm still training with uh, something from Arm Assassin Strength Shop, no matter what it is. And uh, yeah, so. Just thanks for your time and look forward to buying stuff from you, competing with you, competing against you in the future. Cause we do sometimes run into each other at the same yeah. weight classes. I haven't been able to, uh, I've probably gotten you on a couple events at times, but I've never been able to beat you at a competition. So maybe that's something like you said, you had people that you were kind of chasing back. Um, was it Chris Rice that you mentioned? Yeah. You're trying to chase a certain person um, or chase their lifts at that time. That's, that's, kind of how you are to me is like somebody that's around my weight class that you know i just ha i just haven't had the right event list or i just haven't been strong enough on the day or in the certain lifts like uh nationals grippers i just you're like 20 rgc above me on a gripper and it's like i i can only do so much with that you know but then yeah that, that ends up being a lot that's like jed I've, ne I've never beat him in a contest ever um, okay. there's been one contest king kong 2019 yeah if they would have done it percentage based the first year of the grab ball i would have beat him by like 0.6 percent but because it was uh, reverse strongman and the the, yeah. the crusher absolutely killed me yeah i was like 30 places behind him in the crusher so still never beat him that's the goal but yeah, so you, you, you chase Jed, I'm gonna try to chase you and beat you in one of these competitions. And, uh, like I said, hopefully everybody just enjoys the interview and, uh, you know, go check out Luke's website and just enjoy training and try to make the most of your training, train things you like, 
and try to be in the sport for a long time, or if you plan on getting into the sport, you know, you don't want to be one of those people that fizzles and burns out in a year or two. And I don't know, like I said, it's a, it's a lifelong thing. Like Luke said, it's a marathon. Um, just try to stick with it and we'll keep the episodes rolling in Luke. Once again, like I said, I know I'm dragging this out a little bit here at the end, but, uh, but yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming on the show, man. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you doing it and appreciate you having me on. So thank you. All right. So go ahead and I'm going to sign off with that and these will be dropped weekly. So whenever this drops, there'll be another one a week after that, whatever. I'm going to try to keep a weekly pace. So just be on the lookout for that. And we're going to start getting into more things besides interviews. We're going to be doing topic discussions, um, event recaps once results happen. So there's going to be more than interviews, but for right now, we got the interviews dropping weekly and things are going to start picking up. So just thank you everybody for tuning in and we'll sign off with that.